Holy Father, we ask that you awaken us now, all of our faculties, so that we may understand the what it means to be saved in Christ, um, all of all of what it details. Let us see your Son in a more glorious manner, but also let us see the triune God in a most glorious manner. For as much as the Son saves us, it is also a salvation that's brought about by the entire Trinity. So, Father, help us now, lift us up, be with preacher, and be with those who are hearing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good evening, saints. <clears throat> we will now continue in our lessons in Christology, and for maybe uh, the rest of the year, we're going to consider a very important topic, and I think that you're going to appreciate uh, probably this one the most in our lessons in Christology. Um, before I speak of what we're going to talk about, so far we've been talking about the life of Christ, So, um, and I've been trying to get as much detail as I can, so Christ's life in relation to the law, so how does Christ live out according to the law in order for uh, to release us from under the condemnation of the law, uh, Christ's death, all that details, Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension. Uh, all we got left, really, um, in the chronological order of the life of Christ is really the second coming, um, which will happen later, <laughs> much later. Uh, but for our topic of discussion for the next few months, uh, it's going to be something that's very near and dear to my heart, and I believe it's going to be very near and dear to your heart once you... Uh, understand fully what it is. And that is what's called union with Christ. Union with Christ. Now, if you've ever heard of union with Christ, then uh, you're in for a treat um, because union with Christ very much has been uh, a staple, a hallmark uh, amongst the Reformed. Uh, union with Christ, though, when we speak about union with Christ, um, it really speaks of what it means to be saved. What it means to be saved. This is not merely just a theological lesson that I'm giving to you. Although, you know, if there's no application to theology, it should cause contemplation, and contemplation should always cause adoration and worship to God. But nevertheless, when we talk about uh, union with Christ, as much as it is a theological lesson, it is uh, for us to heighten our love for Christ, because it really speaks of what Christ has done for us and how all the benefits of Christ are given to us. I mean, we just sung about this. Uh, we love to speak about the gospel. Now what we're going to do for two months uh, is we're going to talk about simply the gospel and what all the gospel details. But before we talk about union with Christ, uh, let me give you a few uh, terms to write down uh, because they're going to be important when we consider the bulk and meats of this lesson. And mind you, this is just a very short, brief introduction to union with Christ because union with Christ is a very, very large topic. The three, um, the three terms I want you to consider is going to be, and these are Latin terms, I'll define them for you though, it's going to be historia salutis, or rather, let's first start, begin with the pactum salutis, and then move to historia salutis, and then number three, order salutis. I'm going to look at these very, very, very briefly. briefly. The pactum salutis, historically the Reformed have used uh, to speak about the intertrinitarian covenant between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what that means is, um, in times eternal, and mind you, everything I'm going to say right now is not precisely how everything happened. It's purely analogical. Okay, I don't know how this thing was brought about, uh, but I know that it's not the way in which I'm going to describe. But uh, the Pactum Salutis is the covenant of redemption that speaks of the decree that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made with regard to the salvation of the elect. 
In other words, your salvation wasn't brought about when Adam fell in the garden. But your salvation uh, and the, the plan and the will of God to save happened long before Adam fell in the garden. It happened long before the eternal son assumed human flesh. So the uh, covenant of redemption, or pactum salutis, or what it's called in Latin, it just refers to the will intention of the triune God to save sinners. That's essentially what it is. Now let's move on to what's called the Historia Salutis. The Historia Salutis. Another Latin phrase, which is going to be, uh, it translates as the history of salvation. The history of salvation. So we move from the uh, Pactum Salutis, the covenant of redemption, now to the history of salvation. And the Historia Salutis refers to the actual events in time and space by which God brings salvation to his people. So, essentially, the Historia Salutis, um, the history of salvation, is really the outworkings of the Pactum Salutis, or the covenant or decree that was made in times eternal. Mind you, again, very analogical language, okay, when I talk about the covenant of redemption. But the, uh, the Historia Salutis is really... Um, Jesus Christ in space and time doing what uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decreed to do, and that is to save people, to save sinners. Amen for that. And then now we look to the Ordo Salutis, the Ordo Salutis. And the Ordo Salutis refers to the application of the great acts of God in time, uh, in the life of history of the individual believer. So the order salutis is really going to be the order of salvation. It's going to be the application of what's called, or what we just talked about, the historia salutis. So you have the pactum salutis, the covenant redemption in eternity. And then next you have the historia salutis, the end time acting out of that covenant or decree. And then you have the application of what happened in time, which is going to be the order of salvation or the ordo salutis. Okay, these are very um, uh, important things to consider. Um, Richard Muller says, with regards to the order salutis, a term applied to the temporal order of causes and effects through which the salvation of the sinner is accomplished. So you can think of the order salutis as the logical sequence of stages involved in the salvation of a believer. So there's election, effectual calling, regeneration, conversion, Justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. So it just picks up the ordering um, by which, mind you, like for example, there, it's, this is important because um, the the moment you began to believe upon Christ or you heard the gospel and you believed upon Christ, you weren't instantly glorified in time and space. So there's a logical ordering within salvation. Okay, a logical ordering salvation. Sanctification becomes first uh, before uh, justification. So, these phrases are, and these terms are important for us to consider, because what they all speak about is this, that what Jesus won for us, how does the Spirit come to us and apply it to us? What Jesus won for us, what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had decreed to do for us, how does it outwork in time, or outworks in time by the Eternal Son, assuming flesh to live, die, and rise for us? Then how is it applied to us? Well, then the Spirit applies to us the very things that the Son won for us in the history of salvation. In the history of salvation. 
<clears throat> we could say that what Jesus won for us, the Spirit applies to us. Now, how does the Spirit apply to us? How do we get um, all of Christ? Well, the Spirit then unites us to Christ. Unites us to Christ. And when the Spirit unites us to Christ, all of what Christ has won and accomplished for us is ours by faith. Similarly, when you're married, all of what the wife is, is yours. And all of what the husband has is yours. I just learned that recently. So, that's essentially, when we think about union with Christ, that is what is going on. So what is union with Christ then? What is union with Christ? Louis, Louis Burkhoff defines union with Christ this way. That intimate, vital... My, let me stop here. <clears throat> what is your relationship to Jesus Christ? There were a lot of questions that were asked this morning from Pastor Antonio, so let me ask you one. What is your relationship to Jesus Christ? What is that? This is your relationship to Christ. Intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people. In virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength and their blessedness and salvation. That is a great definition of your relationship. It is an intimate, vital, and spiritual union. It is more intimate than a husband and a wife, a parent to a child. But also we see... That this relationship that we have with Christ is we receive the benefits of Christ. As he is our blessedness and reward. And also it sees that union with Christ propels us to live the Christian life. As Burkhoff says, Christ is the source of our life and our strength. So essentially, saints, when we speak of union with Christ, we're essentially asking, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? It means we're united to Jesus Christ. That's what union with Christ is. But we have to ask, where do we get the the phrase union with Christ from? Where do we get the phrase union with Christ from? Is union with Christ found in anywhere in the New Testament? That phrase, union with Christ. Well, no, it's not. Union with Christ is a collective phrase that is meant to encompass the number of terms, expressions, and images in the New Testament, that refers to the believers with Christ. So, for those who are really big on, um, if if your definition of a doctrine or the doctrine term itself is not in the Bible, then I reject it, then you might reject this doctrine because it's not found in the Bible, the term itself. But it's in deeply, richly implied in the Bible. One theologian said the most common, and this is, this is wonderful here, the most common of these expressions is the characteristically Pauline phrase, in Christ. Which occurs in combination with in Christ, in the Lord, and in Him. Approximately, anyone want to guess how many times in Christ, in the Lord, and in Him is used in the Bible, and by Paul? 164 times. That is being used. Specifically, um, yeah, uh, in Paul's letters. So this doctrine is everywhere in the New Testament. Um, let me give you a few examples. Believers individually and the church corporally are said to be possessors of eternal life in Christ, Romans 6.23. Justified in Christ, Romans 8.1. Glorified in Christ, Romans 8.30. Sanctified in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.2. Called in Christ, verse 9. 
made alive in Christ, uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 22, created anew in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, adopted as sons, as children of God in Christ, uh, Galatians 3, 26, elected in Christ, Ephesians 1, 4, and raised with Christ, Colossians 3, 1. Let me give you more. Crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Buried with Him, Colossians uh, 2.12. Baptized into Christ and in His death, Romans 8.6.3. Uh, United with Him in His resurrection, Romans 6.5. And seated with Him in heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. Christ is uh, being formed in believers, Galatians 4.19. And also Christ dwells in our hearts, Ephesians 3.17. There is... Uh, um, uh, an ample amount of biblical evidence concerning us in Christ. This is why I say, even in the outset, I mean, um, your juices are already be flowing because of wanting to understand what is what is my life like as a Christian. My life is now in Christ, and Christ is in me. Historically, the reformed uh, for the reformed union with Christ has been a centerpiece. In all of their theology, and historically also, union with Christ has been something that the Reformed has used to counteract Roman Catholicism. Um, I might give you the reason why, maybe next week, but let me give you just, just some uh, of the Reformed witness to this. Well, Mr. Brocco says, The Lord Jesus not only gives many and excellent benefits to his church, but he and his church mutually belong to each other, are united with each other, and exercise communion with each other, all of which is wondrous beyond comprehension. Comparison, rather. Uh, John Owen, who wrote a lot on union with Christ. He says these two things. Union with Christ is the greatest, most honorable, and glorious of all graces that we are made partakers of. He says union with Christ is the cause, and we're going to open this up next week, is the cause of all other graces that we are made partakers of. Essentially what he's saying is everything that we receive in salvation, the foundation of it is union with Christ. They are communicated unto us by virtue of our union with Christ. Hence our adoption, justification, sanctification, uh, fruitfulness, perseverance, resurrection, glory, find its foundation, my words, find its foundation with union with Christ. With union with Christ. Richard Hooker. Participation is that mutual inward hold which Christ has of us and we of Him. In such sort that we, uh, that each possess other by way of special interest, property, uh, and inherent, uh, compulation. So this doctrine, as we see, is not just one of the theological centerpieces of the Reformed tradition, but it's deeply rooted biblically. Deeply rooted biblically. In fact, we can say that the biblical evidence for union with Christ is overwhelming. So where do we begin? Let me just give you a few things to think about with union with Christ. Let's consider the scope of union with Christ. The scope of union with Christ. John Murray says this, Nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. We're going to open that phrase up Maybe at the last, uh, the last, uh, lesson on this. Because, uh, I'll save that for the end. Indeed, the whole process of salvation has its origin in one phrase. Union with Christ. 
And salvation has its realization of other phrases, phases of union with Christ. So here we see John Murray understands not only the importance of union with Christ, but all of what we say about our benefits of Christ flow from union with Christ. So what is the source of your, of the benefits of Christ? The benefits being adoption, election, sanctification, glorification, justification. What's the source, the root? It's because you're united to Jesus Christ. And everything that you receive, all the benefits you receive, are first given to Christ. And Christ as the head gives those graces and those benefits, trickles them down to the members of his body, the church. So first, there's union with Christ and election. And we're going to look at this next week. But just to give you a little preview. God's redemptive plan for humanity, as was said earlier, began not uh, not um, when the eternal Son assumed flesh. It began long before Adam fell and long before the creation of the world. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we may be holy and blameless before Him. So what Paul is saying is, in a mysterious way, the saints can be comprehended as in Christ, before Christ ever stepped on the scene. Now, that statement is, yes, comforting, but we need to distinguish, because it can be problematic. Uh, we will talk about this next week with regard to, well, if I was always in Christ in a way, then wasn't I always saved? So I was going to deal with a debate that happened in the 16th century over what's called eternal justification. But just for now, we can say, um, in a mysterious way, before the eternal Son assumed flesh, Christ and us were united. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His whole own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ from all eternity. So from all eternity, we were called and we were, we were given these, these blessings before the blessings were, were ever, uh, um, um, or rather I should say, the one who would bless us before uh, uh, came into time and space. This union with Christ then is described as a decretal union. A decretal union. Again, we will talk about this next week. That is to say, the decretal union is the union that exists between Christ and His people by virtue of God's decree to elect. In Christ, some uh, out of the mass of fallen humanity to redemption. And this is what Paul is speaking of in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, let's look at, secondly, union with Christ in the Incarnation. Why did the eternal Son assume human flesh? Well, as we considered last Sunday evening, it was so that the eternal Son would advance our nature, that He would take on humanity and raise our humanity to His humanity. Or rather, we can say, to give to us all of what He has in His humanity and the way um, our nature is advanced is by the Spirit uniting us to Jesus Christ. Um, as our Lord lived in this life, as He died, as He rose from the dead, He did so as our representative. So Jesus then, in His, in His ministry, He wins for us an infinite amount of graces. 
So that when we would believe upon Him, and this is the, the great news about the Gospel, when we believe upon Christ by faith, all that is His and all of what He has done for us is ours. That is how you are saved. When, when, when Christ and everything that happened to Him, this is where those terms help in, in the beginning are helpful, what happened in the history of salvation um, over 2,000 years ago is given to you You know, whenever you believed upon Christ. It's given to you, imputed to you. Paul speaks of this in Romans 4, 22-25. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his own, uh, not for his sake only was it for, uh, was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited. To us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord from the dead. Notice it said, it was not accredited to him as righteousness, right? Paul speaking of, um, uh, Abraham here. Um, not for his sake only as written, that was credited to him, but for our sake also. To us who believe in Him. So, how does one receive the righteousness of Christ? How is the righteousness of Christ accredited to your account? Well, notice Paul doesn't say faith plus works. Faith plus your own merits. But he says, to us who believe in Him. Amen. Who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was also, who was raised uh, or delivered over because of our wrongdoing, and he was raised because of our justification, which we will see in a few weeks. Um, and we talked about this already. Christ at the resurrection was justified. But not only him, the members of his body. Now you might say, how is Christ justified? Because he's, you know, he doesn't need to be justified. We'll talk about that eventually. Third, union with Christ is participation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 9, God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What a wonderful text that is, is it not? That God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship. Those who were far off. You weren't even a stepbrother of Christ. But now you are a brother of Christ. His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That word translated, uh, fellowship, can be translated as sharing or participation. And this sharing and participation is expressed in Scripture in a number of ways. To experience fellowship with the Son is to be made alive in Christ, to be justified in Christ, to be sanctified in Christ, seated in heavenly realms in Christ, built up into Christ, and given the fullness in Christ. The Scriptures also speak of those joined to Christ are members of Christ, crucified with Christ, included in Christ, baptized into Christ, and the body of Christ. One theologian says salvation is realized and appropriated in the lives of fallen humans only as they apprehend Jesus Christ who gives himself and all of his blessings to us and our spirit-empowered faith responds to his gospel. So by faith then, what God does is he incorporates us into Jesus Christ. Into the very life of Christ. This is very mysterious. Very mysterious. And in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. Only in Christ. These are the words of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 to 31. But it is due to Him that you are in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Everything you receive then is because of Christ. Everything you receive because of Christ. And notice what Paul says here is, yes, we receive Christ for righteousness. We receive a forensic declaration before the Father where he bangs the gavel because you are united to his Son and says to you, saints, you're innocent of all charges. But not only that, but you receive also wisdom and sanctification. This sanctification then is to draw you into the life of Christ whereby you are a mirror. When Christ looks at you, he looks at a mirror because he's seeing himself. This is the image that the Father is now um, converting you into. John Gill says concerning this verse, in consequence of their being in Christ, this is a wonderful quote, in consequence of their being in Christ. So what's the consequence of being in Christ? As their head and representative, he becomes all to them. John Calvin rightly says, we see that our whole salvation and all of its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore not take not we should uh, we should therefore take uh, care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. What a wonderful, wonderful quote that is. Everything we receive, everything we have for salvation is in Christ. Let us not then look at the, our virtues, our merits, our theological knowledge, our church attendance, our prayer life. Those things are the outworkings and the evidences, right, of you being united to Christ. But as Pastor Antonio said this morning, even a, a, uh, even a weak faith can behold a strong Christ. And it's only when you behold and hold on to a strong Christ and keep holding on to a strong Christ by faith that he will hold on and continue and you will persevere. Next, union with Christ is Trinitarian. Jesus says in John uh, 14, verses 16, 16 and 17 and 23, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper so that he may be with you forever. This helper, oh, the helper is the spirit of truth whom the word cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he remains with you and you will be in him and, and he and will be in you. He says in verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will follow my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our indwelling with him. So what we see is, Jesus Christ says that the whole Trinity comes to indwell the believer. Yes, we like to say the Spirit indwells us, which he does. But where one person is at, the other two are present as well. So the Father and the Son really indwell you just as the Spirit does as well. When we think of salvation, yes, it is true that on the account of Christ's perfect righteousness, we can stand before a holy God, innocent of Adam's first sin. But saints, we want to think that the Father sending His Son was for us to be innocent and free of charges only. But rather, the Father sent His Son so that creation may return back to Him. This is what's called in the medieval period the great Exodus and Reditus schema, which is called the exit, exit and return schema. And what that teaches is simply we come forth from God by creation and we return to God by redemption. We come forth from God 
from creation and return back to God by redemption. Or to put it more in a Trinitarian manner, in creation, we come forth from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. And in redemption, we return to the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. By sanctifying grace, the whole Trinity really comes to indwell the believer by knowledge and by love. John says in 1 John 3, 1, See how great a love the Father a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we would be called children of God. So in Christ, what we see is we are welcomed into the family of God. That our Christ, by His life, death, and resurrection, He has reconciled us to such a close proximity with the Father that God is not simply God, but He's our Father. We can call God our Father. That in Christ, we are invited into the same loving, intimate, and eternal relationship that the Son shares with the Father. Now, that is very, very hard to contemplate, right? But Paul says of this in Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us into adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. What this means, saints, is, as one theologian says, becoming a Christian means coming to the Father-Son relationship. Yes, it means a forensic declaration that you are righteous before God, but also it's to be invited into the very loving life of the triune God. Because you are united to the Son. Cyril of Alexandria. For the Word of God is a divine nature, even when it is in flesh, and although He is by nature God, we are His kindred, because of His taking the same flesh as ours, so we are His brother. Therefore, the manner of our fellowship is similar. For just as he is closely related to the Father and through their identity of nature, the Father is closely related to him, so also uh, are we closely related to him and he to us. And so far as he is was, uh, was made man, and through him, uh, as through a mediator, we are joined to the Father. So what Cyril, Cyril is essentially affirming is that when we are united to Christ, we are united to the humanity of Christ, which necessarily involves our sharing in the whole person of Christ. So yes, we're united to the humanity of Christ, but we're, but, but we're not just, it's not just the humanity of Christ. As, as if he, his humanity is divorced from his divinity. But we're united to the very person of Christ. And because we're united to the very person of Christ, we share in the very same loving relationship that the Father has with his Son. Next, union with Christ, and these last two are very short, is a vital union. Vital union. And we will speak about this next month. Jesus says in John 15, uh, 1 through 5, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. And the one who remains in me and I am him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. These words speak of the intimate relations that Christ has with his people. From our Savior's words we see that Christ's life It flows into the believer. That the life of Jesus Christ, it flows into the believer. That is to say, Jesus Christ, saint, is 
actually, really, and vitally, which vital means lively, communicating his life to the believer. So right now, you sitting here, through the preached word, Jesus Christ is giving to you his life. He's communicating all of himself to you. All the benefits of our salvation exist in a loving person and flow to us like the vital sap which exists between the vine and the branches. But saints, our vital union with Christ is not merely that we receive his benefits. It's not that we receive merely just adoption and sanctification, all these wonderful things for salvation, but we receive Jesus Christ. We receive Christ. We participate not in the benefits of Christ per se and merely, but we participate in the life of Christ. In the life of Christ. Therefore, our union with Christ is lively and vital. Why is it that you have not stopped believing in Christ? Because Christ has been communicating his life to you. That is why. One of practical application of it. Why is it that you have not lost your mind and all these other things? Because Jesus Christ's life is being communicated to you. And lastly, oh, well, let me give you just a few scriptures for this. Uh, John 11, he is our resurrection and life. John 5, our eternal life in, in his own being. Paul writes in Galatians 2, 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul has this man, weird way of thinking of salvation, does he not? I'm in Christ and Christ in me. And he goes on further and says that the lives that we live now are hidden in Christ. Very, very intimate ways in which Paul conceptualizes salvation. We'll speak about more uh, last uh, next month. Lastly, saints, union with Christ is a profound mystery. Everything that I've said is yes, I can teach it, I can say it, but I do not comprehend it. I can apprehend but I cannot fully map, wrap my mind around this intimate union. Thomas Boston brings us out well. He says the gospel, and for those who think that the gospel is, you don't think that. I know people who do think this though. The gospel is merely the ABC of Christianity. Let me move on to like Trinity and things like that. Thomas Boston says the gospel is a doctrine of mysteries. The gospel is a doctrine of mysteries. Oh, what mysteries are here. The head in heaven, the members on earth, yet are really united. Christ in heaven, the body here on earth, really united. Let me give you an example. Um, when you go, and I said this to uh, uh, one of the, uh, Norma and David earlier, when you go to the restroom in the morning, do you leave your head on the, t- on the bed? And your body goes, and you say, body, you go, my head's going to stay. No, your head must remain with your body. There's very few things, if not anything, that you can do without the total package. But isn't it interesting that Christ the head is in heaven, but his body here is on earth, and yet we are united much closer than any union you can think of here on earth. Very, very, very mysterious. Christ in the believer, living in him, walking in him, and the believer dwelling in God, putting on the Lord Jesus, eating his flesh, drinking his blood. This makes the saints a mystery to the world. Yeah, a mystery to themselves. This is a mystery to the world, yes. This is even a greater mystery to those whom Christ has revealed himself to. But this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 29 to 32. He says, 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ also does the church. Because we are parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Christ and the church. What are the benefits of this, saints, of learning union with Christ after all of what we have said? Well, Lane Tipton says, all the benefits of redemption, whether we're thinking in terms of justification, adoption, or sanctification, are mediated to the believers by virtue of a spirit-wrought faith that places them into union with the crucified and resurrected Son of God. And simply put, union with Christ teaches us, as Pastor Antonio said this morning, however weak your faith is, because you're united to Christ, you're secured in Christ. This is what I hope you learn at the very end of this process of when we learn about union with Christ. It's how much you're secured in Jesus Christ. When we want to talk about salvation, we want to talk about the gospel, well, for the next two months, we're going to talk about and break down Jesus Christ, the work of Christ, the benefits of Christ, and how we're secured and saved in Christ. Let's pray.